A special thanks goes out to the folks at Anchor.fm for bringing you this podcast. Hello again, everyone. Today, part two of UFOs over whales. I'm Tom Zania, and this is Tom Reads Your Story. Coming to you almost live, it's time once again for Tom Reads Your Story, the number one spoken word podcast on the web for audiobooks, social media posts, current events, and just plain whatever. So let's start the show. For the next half hour, I'll be your host. I'm voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. And we are back. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Tom Read Your Story. I'm glad you're here. So listen, what do you think about all this stuff? You know, uh, you can communicate with me. I'm not some weird thing up in the sky that nobody can figure out. You can communicate with me. You can send me a message. It's right there. It's right there when you listen to the show. Just say, hey, Tom, this isn't for me. Or, hey, Tom, this is really kind of cool. It's, in my, well, in my opinion, I think this is really a very well-written uh, first-hand experience piece uh, about something that people have been following for quite a long time now. You know, the thing of it is, the whole UFO, um, I guess, study has been around since like World War II or just after, or just, yeah, after World War II. And there uh, there were also something, there's something about... Uh, uh, fighter pilots saw groups of these things. I think it was during World War II. And um, anyway, it's not going away. And we have finally got military video that has been put on national news. You know, instead of some weirdly produced film clip that you would see on YouTube. And there's a lot of that on YouTube, which is unfortunate because I really like YouTube. I really do. I think it's one of the best websites on the internet. But unfortunately, there's a lot of garbage on YouTube that you can tell is made by people that are kind of out there and people that you know, are just making up stories, basically. So anyway, I hope you're liking this. I hope you're learning something from it. And I hope you uh, are enlightened by the writing of something that usually isn't written very well. Uh, this, of course, is the second part of the story. There will be a slight break between the two um two sections. And uh, so here we are. This is part two of UFOs over whales.
Back home in Langernew, Margaret called her boss, Jenny Randalls, the director of investigations at Bufora, to relay the nurse's story. To Margaret's surprise, she learned that it was not the first time Randalls had heard about the Berwyn incident. Months after it happened, Randalls had received a typed letter in the post from the Aerial Phenomena Inquiry Network, a shadowy group that provided no return address. It read like a parody of bad spycraft. Tall, humanoid aliens traveling in a flying saucer had landed in North Wales on 23 January, it claimed, and APEN was preparing to share their case report. A cassette tape accompanied the letter, which played a bizarre medley of Nazi marching tunes, excerpts from news broadcasts about UFOs, drunk-sounding Welshmen, and an American voice who claimed to be the supreme commander of APEN. Whoever was behind it styled themselves as a group of top-secret neo-Nazi alien-human emissaries, and it was simply too bizarre for the UFO community to swallow. When APEN started making personal threats against Randalls and other ufologists, she wrote them off as callous crackpots and dismissed their reports as nonsense. Alarmingly, Pat's testimony gave APEN's claim that aliens had landed that January night new significance. Citing Margaret's interview with Pat, Randalls wrote a colorful article for Bufora's magazine. The nurse's testimony was hugely significant. She was a pillar of the community whose word would not be questioned, someone who was used to keeping a calm head in a crisis. Besides all of that, it wasn't just the nurse who'd seen the object, but her two daughters as well. There was even evidence of a cover-up based on Margaret's notes. On the way down the mountain, the nurse and her daughters had been stopped by soldiers who insisted they leave the area immediately. It was an incredible revelation. The resulting article was shared widely by UFO enthusiasts across the country and set light to a powder keg of conspiracy theories and accounts of alien bodies littering the mountainside. It was the 90s, and Britain was heading for UFO mania. The X-Files set people's imagination ablaze, and television newscasts showing amateur footage of strange lights and shapes in the sky held viewers in thrall. The Berwyn incident, cynics wrote, was something Britain's ufologists had been longing for. Finally, they had their own Roswell, complete with state cover-up. Margaret sent Randall's article to Pat, who called her back in a state of agitation. It is well known among those who report for a living that publication of details revealed in an intimate interview can send a once willing witness into a panic, even causing the witness to recant certain facts in order to avoid further attention. But contrary to what she was sure the nurse told her, Pat insisted she had seen no one on her way home that night, and she demanded Margaret correct the article. Margaret did not own a tape recorder and kept only brief notes, but these appeared to back up the claims made in the article. That the nurse said she had seen soldiers that night. But then a different thought crept into her mind. Was old age dulling her senses and costing her mistakes? Her usual confidence gave way to self-doubt. Why could she not remember things correctly anymore? Perhaps society was right in overlooking its oldest and most experienced members. 
in allowing old age to be defined by its youngsters. She decided to contact the younger researchers who'd been with her to ask what they recalled. To Margaret's relief, one was adamant that the nurse said she had seen soldiers. The other, who suffered hearing loss due to his days as a DJ, hadn't heard much of the interview to begin with. No, Margaret was sure Pat had told her about the military men, and so a new possibility dawned on her. Could the police or Ministry of Defense have told the nurse to keep quiet after the article came out? Ever since the 1940s, ufologists, who once included members of the House of Lords, have believed that secret political powers would do anything necessary to conceal the truth. Reports of men in black went back almost as far as the flying saucer story itself, and Margaret had reason to believe that these hidden powers had spent decades systematically silencing witnesses of UFOs and other paranormal phenomena. Soon after, Margaret was in a shop photocopying an artist's impression of the UFO Pat described on Kader Berwin, when the woman behind the counter, when the woman behind the counter seemed transfixed by it. The woman apologized for prying and explained that she, too, had gone to the Berwyn Mountains that night and had seen precisely the same reddish, well-defined object sitting on the mountainside. Not only that, her car had been turned back by a police roadblock. Encouraged, Margaret hired a community hall in the town of Bala and stuck up notices on wooden telegraph poles to alert people to her inquiry. What happened on that night in 1974? Back in the 60s, she had appeared regularly on the UFO public speaking circuit. This community hall was far smaller than the venues she was used to, but that didn't make it any easier. She was exposing herself, standing up in front of a hall packed with farmers and agricultural workers, retirees, and the children of late relatives who claimed to have seen something that night. There was a lush, there was a hush as Margaret, the small but commanding UFO lady, addressed the room. She spoke of the significance of the case and encouraged people to tell her what they saw that January night, 20 years earlier. Suddenly, the room was abuzz as people stretched their hands up and jockeyed to speak over one another. Out of their mouths spilled stories of military convoys roaring through the area around midnight, cars backing up on the mountainside trying to catch a glimpse of the UFO, and strange red lights elsewhere. One gentleman, an amateur astrologist, had written a detailed description of a reddish-orange orb in the diary at the time. One gentleman, an amateur astrologist, had written a detailed description of a reddish-orange orb in his diary at the time. The barmaid in a local hotel recounted the barmaid in a local hotel recounted how glasses had flown from the shelves and that the next day, taciturn strangers in dark suits had checked in for a whole week, spending every day up on the mountain. Overwhelmed and struggling with the Welsh accents and unutterable clusters of consonants, Margaret asked people to write their contact details so she could conduct proper interviews. In the weeks that followed, 
Almost every day, the postman would deliver a handwritten letter from someone who'd been at the meeting or heard about the UFO lady. Out of fear, perhaps, many of the authors chose to remain anonymous. A few had stories that Margaret found difficult to square. A friend with an interest in UFOs claimed to have seen a huge object pulsating on the mountain that night. But when Margaret attempted to find the track she claimed to have taken up the mountain, she could not. Could her friend have made the story up? The retraction about Pat, having been stopped by soldiers on the mountain, damaged Martin's professional standing, and she could not afford to make another mistake. What Margaret needed now was another reliable, independent witness to what Pat had seen, which would help convert the nurse's claims into the sort of evidence that would stand up in a court of law. From there, she could build her case to convince both the cynics and believers. There had always been rivalry in ufology. Margaret recalled the time when a colleague had given a biting description of her as a middle-aged housewife repeater, a derogatory term to imply someone lacks credibility, even though she was just a young woman at the time. But these days, it felt dirtier and less supportive than before. Once, when Margaret expressed her concern to a prominent ufologist, that he had misinterpreted a number of documents she had given him. The ufologist threatened to visit her and beat her to a pulp. Unperturbed, Margaret continued her work. She approached police and military sources about the Berwyn incident and acquired a copy of the police report from the night, but it revealed little of significance. At the same time, a number of cynics, or debunkers as they are commonly called, had been attracted to the case and wanted to dispel all claims of paranormal activity. The mainstream media repeatedly showcased these cynics' opinions while excluding researchers like Margaret from the debate. In later years, one of Margaret's friends and allies crossed over to the other side to publish a book with the renowned debunker Andy Roberts called UFOs That Never Were. Chapter 8 was dedicated to the Berwyn Mountains. A British Roswell? Roberts, a prominent voice in UFO circles, was a formidable researcher who spent years trying to disprove UFO stories and was now acquiring documents relating to the Berwyn case. Just as Margaret believed firmly in the possibility of alien intervention, Andy did not. Andy is a youth worker, historian, and author with a cropped white beard who bears more than a passing resemblance to the aging rocker Sting. He had discovered psychedelic drugs in his youth, and his experiences had led him to conclude that there was a far greater gap between reality and perception than we realize. After hearing repeatedly about the Berwyn incident, surely a classic example of human misinterpretation, Andy made it his goal to prove that the whole Berwyn episode, including what Pat had seen, was simply an unlikely coincidence of celestial and terrestrial events perceived by an emotionally charged human being. In short, an outstanding example of modern folklore in the making. As Andy commenced his work, 
a potentially explosive break crossed Margaret's desk in 1996. A known source passed along information allegedly collected from a retired, high-ranking military officer who went by the pseudonym, James Prescott. The officer, Margaret's source claimed, had been deployed to Landerfell, Pat's village in North Wales. Soon after the explosion, he and a small team had driven up and collected a number of oblong coffin-like boxes before driving them to Porton Down, the UK government's most secretive science park. There, scientists had opened them. Inside, Prescott had seen two dead aliens who conformed to the description of those seen at Roswell in New Mexico. Small, thin, humanoid beings with skin covering skeletal frames. These beings are known as greys, due to their skin color and account for over 40% of reported alien sightings in America. Margaret had misgivings about the information the source was feeding her. The officer was refusing to meet in person. He refused even to provide his real name, and aspects of the story didn't add up. Margaret wanted to drop it and pass the information on to a younger researcher who had time and energy to spare. But the same hope that drove her in the past won out, that maybe, just maybe, there was some truth in this. Margaret and Ron, her ailing husband, set off for West Wales, a 300-mile round trip, to interview a young soldier who claimed to know the real James Prescott, an officer killed in the Falklands. Nothing came of it, and Margaret was still looking into the claims of the enigmatic James Prescott when, in November 1996, she received a call from Mike Seville, a gentleman in the south of England. Mike and his wife had been living in a farmhouse on the edge of Landerfell, close to Pat's house, when they felt a terrible rumbling. They had stood on the steps to an old slate barn and watched as a bright, clearly defined orange circle came down to rest on the mountainside some three miles from their house. It hovered on the horizon for around half an hour, then dropped out of view. He didn't see any small white lights as Pat had, and he didn't see any military activity but it was clearly, as far as he was considered, a UFO. Later, a local man came to Margaret with a pile of notes and an annotated map that was soft and yellow from age and handling. The documents had been given to him by five retired professionals, including a solicitor and a doctor. These men, the local claimed, had independently witnessed an alien spacecraft crashing that night Using their illustrious standing and professional networks, they had discovered that the Royal Navy had engaged two UFOs that night, which had risen from the waters of the Irish Sea. The smaller of the two UFOs had reared up into the sky, while the larger retaliated, zapping a naval ship and killing a number of its crew, whose deaths were presumably covered up. The larger UFO then took off towards North Wales, with fighter jets in pursuit. It flew over the island of Anglesey and the university city of Bangor before turning south towards Snowdonia National Park. Finally, amongst the snowy peaks, a fighter pilot had hit his target and the UFO started to descend, 
zigzagging wildly before crashing on the western slopes of Kadir Berwin. At this point, the gentleman had seen the alien spacecraft lift itself onto a military transporter, while aliens with large heads and eyes, wearing jumpsuits, which Margaret recognized from their description as greys, surrendered and were driven down the hill. The moment Margaret heard the story, she knew it was improbable. Why ever would an alien spacecraft, particularly a damaged one, lift itself onto an earthly transporter? She conceded that parts of their story jibed with other reports she'd heard over the years of military jets chasing UFOs and there being underground bases for UFOs, such as Dulce Base on the border of Colorado and New Mexico. But did she have the energy to investigate it? She agonized over this decision in a way that was unusual for her because there was so much bound up with it. Margaret was one of the most experienced ufologists in the UK. She had trained under the greats, men such as Brinsley Lapour Trench, 8th Earl of Clancarty, an aristocrat and editor of the Flying Saucer Review. With experience came a sense of privilege. Margaret believed that people who see UFOs are never the same again. They grow spiritually and expand intellectually, perhaps to prepare for the acceptance that life does not end on Earth. It was a gift that she cherished and did not want to let go of. She was flush with confidence, but at other times, doubts crept in. Her husband was now in a wheelchair and could not drive long distances. Could she ask him to drive her again after the last failed trip? She was also unnerved by how much disinformation surrounded her. False claims abounded and hoaxers went to great lengths to trick people like her, whose principle of dutifully following up every lead left her vulnerable to tomfoolery and propaganda. Meanwhile, more alleged military sources contacted her, claiming they too had seen or heard of aliens being retrieved from the Berwins and taken to government facilities. The theory that a spacecraft had crashed was getting more and more attention in the specialist UFO press. The internet was emerging as a tool for research and publication, and the field of ufology was in rapid transition. The Wales case presented a turning point, and Margaret, very much a representative of the old school of ufology, found herself stuck in the slack tide. Whilst Margaret ran herself ragged in her attempt to chase down the mounting leads, other ufologists went in a new direction, dismissing the old Berwyn episode as nonsense and siding with Roberts, the denier. Margaret's own health was also declining. She had bronchial troubles that prevented her from being outside at night and gazing up at the stars, let alone exploring the mountainside for topographical features and signs of disturbed earth. A sheaf of newspaper cuttings that lauded her achievements as an investigator were filed neatly away in clear plastic wallets in a trunk. But the more she investigated, the further she was from the truth. She could no longer sense the way forward, and her long, trusted instincts on whom to trust were wavering. Andy Roberts, who was enjoying a rising reputation in UFO circles as a professional irritant, was making great progress on the case. 
Among his findings, he had discovered that in 1997, in the nearby county of Stratfordshire, a tent with a hunting lamp inside had been mistaken for a UFO, a perfect example of how misperception could reframe an unidentified but prosaic visual source as something otherworldly. Had Pat, the nurse, similarly been looking at a hunter's lamp? He and others exchanged their views on a website, Ufology in UK. Many of them were disparaging of Margaret Fry, and when a young gentleman called Scott Felton, a newcomer to UFO research, started asking them questions about the Berwyn case, they were quick to disregard Margaret's research as just the rantings of an old woman, as Scott recalls. Scott felt they seemed all too eager to dismiss the story, so he contacted Margaret to see for himself. When Margaret read Scott's polite letter expressing an interest in her work, worries about her age, mistakes, and critics dissipated. She felt like Dana Scully once more, hot on the heels of truth. She invited Scott to visit her bungalow in Abergale, a market town pressed in between the popular beach resorts of Rill and Colwyn Bay, to go through her research notes. Scott was a marksman and gamekeeper, trained to breed and protect animals for conservation and sport hunting purposes. He was some 30 years younger than Margaret and respectfully deferential, a quiet but fervent believer in aliens. Feeling in charge, Margaret appraised him and decided he had the physical fitness and driver's license that the Berwyn case required. Sitting on her couch, Scott told Margaret that he had seen a UFO back in the 80s although none so dramatic as hers. It was dawn, he said, and he was overlooking the Mercy Estuary in Liverpool, where he regularly went duck shooting. As he approached the duck's feeding spot, he called his gun dog, Lucy, to heal, but she ignored him. He called again. Lucy was pointing at something, front paw raised, tail rigid, eyes unblinking, in the faintest traces of dawn. Scott could make out the outlines of oyster catchers and curlews as they skittered along the shoreline. To the left, the reflection of a vast oil refinery glimmered on the water. Then, suddenly, in the direction of Lucy's inquisitive nose, a light snapped on. It was no more than ten feet from them, and it hovered above the ground, illuminating the shingle below it. Lucy stood transfixed. Eventually, the object moved away to the water's edge, where a flock of birds erupted in a cloud of flapping wings and alarm calls. For Scott, the object was unidentified, and it was flying, so it was, in the purest sense, an unidentified flying object. Ever since he had become interested in the Berwyn area, Scott had wondered whether government intelligence agents were watching him, he had recently been arrested for shooting and dismembering a cow, a crime he did not commit and was able to produce an alibi for. Could this have been an attempt to warn him off the case? Margaret said yes, this was possible. She made him a cup of tea, arranged a few biscuits on a china plate, and produced a mountain of documents for him to browse through folders, scribbled on paper scraps and notebooks, all brimming with a bewildering array of information relating to the Berwyn case. 
Scott was struck by the unexpected openness and trust from this elderly woman, who was at once childishly naive and determinedly cynical. He was new to ufology, but felt convinced that what they needed was not more information, but less. They needed to sift out and discard everything questionable, including all anonymous testimonies and focus on facts. Scott was flattered by Margaret's willingness to collaborate and Margaret by Scott's interest. She knew instinctively that his intrepidness and systematic approach would complement her curiosity, physical shortcomings, and fear of heights. And she agreed, despite his lack of experience, to collaborate on the case. They made an improbable duo, a plump Miss Marple and a gun-toting gamekeeper. But both felt energized by their meeting. Scott drove up the mountain to retrace the nurse's steps for himself. Alone on the desolate moorland, buffeted by wind, his curiosity deepened. Virtually none of the so-called ufologists writing about crash landings and alien bases in North Wales had bothered to stand out here and consider the feasibility of their claims. It was ridiculous to think that a UFO had crashed here and that government agencies had somehow removed the debris without there being witnesses to it. The access was dreadful. To remove any trace of the impact would have taken weeks. Scott realized with a jolt what was missing. Of all the researchers, not one had truly got to know the terrain walked the land, and watched how the light up here behaved. There was no way that what Pat had seen was actually a tent lit by a torchlight, as Andy Roberts now claimed. And that was part two of UFOs over Wales. Hope you enjoyed that today. That brings us to the end of yet another episode of Tom Reed's Story. Portions were pre-recorded. Please tell your friends if you enjoyed your your visit today because we're always looking for new ones. Thanks, Anchor.fm, for this opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. Take care, everyone. Bye now. This is Tom Zania. For more information on my availability for your e-learning, commercial, or audiobook project, visit my website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. We hope you visit us again real soon for another episode of Tom Reads Your Story. Thank you.